in Australia down. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum seem to be on a little bit of an upswing right now. Um, so there it is. Uh, thank you very much to Chrissy Lai, our producer today, and our sound man, Ming. Uh, we'd like you to get ready next after the news. We've got Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb who are going to be coming on to give us uh, another exciting day of back chat. Quick hit on the weather. weather. It's going to be cool with cloudy periods in the morning, mainly fine and dry during the day. The temperature now is 17 degrees Celsius, 69% humidity. I'm Andrew Work, and this is Money Talk. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Uh, the time is now 8.31, and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. Air travellers may be facing disruption over the Christmas and New Year period after the Cathay Pacific Flight Attendance Union threatened to strike or take other industrial action. It's calling for talks with the flag carrier to discuss what it describes as messy rosters and shortened breaks. The union says it received approval from members to take industrial action. The union's vice chairwoman is Grace Hsu. The tone of the meeting is is like harmony because we, we haven't talked to our members in such a big meeting for like two years. Then they share their experience, they share their idea. We collect a lot of brilliant ideas. And then meanwhile, uh, what's the next action? We just want to let you know that we do have 100% agree for the whatever union is going to take for the next motion. So we have fully support from our members. But what's next action is we need to discuss and then welcome more. Cathay Pacific has acknowledged that the airline has experienced some temporary temporary rostering issues as it rebuilds its network. In a written response, the carrier stated that many of the issues had been resolved for the January roster. It appealed for patience as it seeks to settle what it called remaining issues. The airline reassured customers that its flights would continue as scheduled and said there was no need for concern. Donald Trump's family business has been convicted of tax fraud and other financial crimes, with a company described by prosecutors as having a culture of fraud and deception. The Financial Times legal correspondent Joe Miller was outside the courthouse in New York. So all of the various allegations that have been made against um, Donald Trump and his businesses over the years, um, it's fair to say that very few people thought that his business empire would be tried in this court under criminal charges. Uh, let alone be found guilty. And the history of this case that was originally brought uh, last year is one in which prosecutors were really unsure of its merits and really unsure if they were able to prove that the fact that the um, Trump organization gave some of its executives quite egregious perks off the books without properly declaring them um, as uh, taxable income, uh, whether they could really try that case and get a conviction. The United States has insisted it isn't enabling Ukraine to strike into Russia following attacks on military bases deep inside Russian territory. The State Department spokesman Ned Price told reporters that Washington's support for Ukraine did not include such operations. We have not provided Ukraine with weapons that it is to use inside of Russia. We've been very clear that these are defensive supplies. Uh, We are, the the president said very clearly some time ago, uh, we are not enabling uh, Ukraine to strike beyond beyond its borders. We are not encouraging uh, Ukraine to strike beyond its borders. 
But Mr Price did not say who carried out the attacks. On Monday, the Russian Defence Ministry blamed Ukrainian drones. It said three people were killed and two aircraft damaged. A major United Nations conference on preserving biodiversity worldwide has opened in the Canadian city of Montreal. More than 10,000 delegates are taking part. Over the next two weeks, they'll try to agree how to stem habitat loss and preserve sensitive ecosystems. In her opening comments, one of the conference's executives, Elizabeth Maruma Marema, said failing ecosystems were damaging the global economy. The loss of biodiversity has never reached the rate it is in the history of humankind. Even the recent WWF Living Planet report told us out of the monitored wildlife population, since 1970, 69% have completely dropped. These are not simple numbers. And we know half of the global GDP is dependent on biodiversity and ecosystem services it provides. The broadcaster Al Jazeera has filed a case against Israeli forces at the International Criminal Court over the killing of its correspondent Shirin Abu Akleh. The Palestinian-American journalist was shot during an Israeli raid in the occupied West Bank in May. Speaking in The Hague, her niece, Lina Abu Akleh, said Israel must be held to account. When individual states are unwilling or incapable of investigating their own atrocities, as in the case with Israel, it is the responsibility of the international community to intervene to ensure war crimes don't go unpunished. The evidence is overwhelmingly clear. It's time for the ICC to take action. Israel's Prime Minister Yair Lapid said his country would not be preached to about morals in warfare. Finally, Indonesia's parliament has passed new laws criminalizing unauthorized protests and sex outside marriage. There'll be tougher punishment for blasphemy and journalists can be punished for writing articles deemed incomplete. The changes come into force in three years' time. And we'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's programme, we're looking at Hong Kong's historic buildings and how best to preserve and use them. Often it's the case of adapt or die. There are many examples of revitalization projects, old buildings put to new uses that flourish, such as Tycoon and Chess Central. Or there's the Foreign Correspondents Club at the old dairy farm depot that's just gotten a lease renewal from the government. But not all of these projects worked out. The Hopa Music Foundation has just handed back the historic Hopa Mansion in Taihang to the government more than two years before its lease was up, citing some income limitations and operational challenges. So what's the best way to save such historic buildings from the wrecking ball and put them to good use? After 9.15, we'll be looking at a new locally developed hepatitis B drug that could free patients from having to take pills for their whole lives. And at 9.25, we'll be getting an update on the World Cup from our sports correspondent. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Admiralty studio heritage conservationist Fredo Cheung, who is the former vice president of the Hong Kong Institute of Architectural Conservationists, and John Batten, the convener of the Central and Western Concern Group. Also joining us on the line is lawmaker Andrew Lam, a former chairman of the Antiquities Advisory Board. Now, um, good morning to you all, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with you, Mr. Lam. Do you think Hong Kong is getting it right when it comes to preserving old buildings? I think uh, we've done quite a bit to move things forward, uh, but things are never perfect. Uh, I think there are quite a number of things that we have to 
improve a point, including the uh, the conservation uh, for historic building partnership scheme, and you know the funding process, and also uh, in kind of uh, research uh, on uh, the unique characters of graded buildings. Uh, I think there are quite many things that we just have to keep pumping uh, resources on to to make it, uh, you know, uh, develop uh, in, in the right direction. Yeah, so let's have a look at this uh, Hopa mansion that, you know, the, the people who operated just handed it back two years earlier than planned. So it's one of the um, items under the revitalizing historic buildings through partnership scheme. And the reason why they handed it back was it was, it was converted to become a music center. And during COVID, they simply couldn't get the performances going. They couldn't make the money they wanted. And now it's, it's closed to the public. Now, don't they deserve some kind of government help to keep them going, given it's you know, not out of their own, not not their own fault that the scheme has fallen through, Mr. Lam. Now, actually, the government has provided assistance, financial assistance, to all NGOs, and uh, if I remember correctly, to uh, aid uh, you know uh, this kind of uh, program uh, operator or venue operator. So the government uh, did provide assistance, but whether it's adequate for each and every project, uh, that's for sure, because. Uh, Hopal uh, couldn't uh, survive, uh, that's for sure. And you rightly point out that's actually uh, much about uh, the COVID rather than the business model of Hopal or the uh, features of the scheme itself. Okay, uh, Fred Ojak, your thoughts on the closure of the Hopal mansion? Yeah, I agree with what Andrew was saying and that... Um, yeah, in a way, it's not because of the business model, which is the reason why Hopar failed, but instead it's actually down to COVID. And this actually points out one of the um, very important aspects about um, these conservation projects. And that is that you, um, you need to plan ahead and then uh, come up with contingency plans for um, unforeseen circumstances. So nowadays, when we talk about heritage conservation in the international context, um, we talk a lot about disaster management, and then of which you know COVID is actually one of those scenarios. So how do you um, ensure the survival of these heritage assets, not just the hardware but also the software, and uh, in te in these difficult times? And that's something which um, has proven to have been fallen short, you know, with the Halpar scenario. Right. Are there other projects that are under the same scheme that are having similar problems? Do you know, Mr. Chang? Um, we do actually have... Um, well, there are uncorroborated, um, um, I think, sources which are telling us that they are, will actually have difficulties you know, um, surviving the end of the year. Right. Can you give some examples? Uh, we, I am not at liberty to disclose, but yeah, they are certainly uh, under the. They actually have very difficult time um, surviving, you know, under COVID, and it is putting a severe strain on their finances. 
Right. And uh, Mr. Batten, what's your, your view on uh, this whole um, idea of uh, preserving historic buildings in Hong Kong? Just now, uh, Mr. Lam was saying that uh, um, more resources is needed. Is that, what, is that the only thing we need, more resources? Um, it's easy to say we need more resources. Um, but I, I feel that It's about planning. It's about looking forward, as Fredo just said. It's about um, being appropriate. And when I saw the the idea for Hall Par, I, I had two two thoughts in my mind. Is one is the original anger that the historic part of that site was actually demolished. It was the um, the the Tiger Balm Garden. Um, that, that, that was the important part of the site because that's the part of the site that the public visited. And so you go back to those days when uh, Sally Orr, the owner of the site, ne needed money um, and she sold the site to Chen Kong, who've got a huge development there. But the negotiations were that the, uh, with the government was that the, the, the house would be preserved. And um, you've ripped out the, hist the, the major historic part and you're left over with a site that's truncated. And the government was, was left with a, a, a quandary. What do we do with it? Um, and there, there are a number of buildings, uh, historic buildings in Hong Kong, which their original purpose uh, has changed and we need to find a new purpose for them. Now, you know, rather than talking about Hall Par being a failure, let, let's just move on from that and, 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 and you know, with the, the, the music idea, which of course was underfunded, undercapitalized. Um, it was, from what, what I gather, someone's an individual's um, idea and went forward and um, the advisory committee on, on heritage buildings accepted the idea. But actually there are many, many good examples of, of older buildings being repurposed and being reused. And, um, you know, one of them, for example, just off the top of my head is the, the Typo Police Station or the Aberdeen Police Station. Aberdeen Police Station is used for a, a, a youth group and the, the preservation of the building itself is very well because they, they haven't touched the interior. And one of the, the, the issues I have with, with the way we approach heritage conservation is, Dygroon's a very good example, is the majority of the buildings, although it has a monument status, the interiors are, are not protected. It's the exterior of the building that's protected. And so you've got a, an example of Dai Gwoon that in essence has become, a, in many places of, on the site, has become closed to the public because they're now expensive restaurants. Um, so the access is, is based on your affordability. Um, maybe the central market is an interesting example because the original plans for that site were, was basically to build an extra, I think it was uh, three or four stories. And, um, you know, 
we all objected to this because it would ruin the fabric of the building. And we argued that it was a market. It's, let's go back to its original purpose because we know that uh, nearby Graham Street Market uh, is under pressure. And so the ground floor of, of, of the central mark could have been used as a, a veggie and, and fruit uh, uh, market. But, you know, things don't work logically sometimes in Hong Kong. And that wasn't taken up. And we now have this, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it just feels dead to me, central market. But what I do like about it is, although they've destroyed the original stalls from the, I think they were probably put in the, in the 1940s, which were beautiful. At least it's an open plan, you know, so we, we can go forward in future and, and, and put other things in there. But, um, you know, I, I think our, our major problem here is there, in many ways, there are many stakeholders and bureaucrats uh, who have rules and ideas which are a very one very bad and very bad design and they actually have never run a business so they don't know about the the pressures of cash flow on a business and you know i totally agree with andrew and fredo um the last four years in hong kong have been really awful with the protests and and then three years of COVID. Right. And uh, Mr. Lam, what do you think of uh, what Mr. Batten is saying? I mean, he's talking about a tycoon and central market. They have, uh, I mean, they have uh, um, been revitalized. They're, now they're full of um, shops and restaurants. I mean, of course, when we talk about uh, preservation projects, we have to look at financial viability or sustainability. But um, how do we strike the right balance to make sure the building is preserved without uh, being uh, too commercialized? Right. I think uh, let's look at the uh, core issue here. When we talk about partnership scheme or revitalization, I think uh, the first thing we have to make sure is that we could uh, conserve that building. And the second thing is to identify, hopefully, uh, the best possible available uses uh, which can uh, sustain uh, is operation as you know far as possible. Now, for the first part, I think in the past um, you know ten years or so, um, actually more than that, uh, we've done quite a bit in uh, conserving those buildings. And um, the second point is we have to understand uh, any functional change and the actual uh, use within a building will change over time. Now, then, it's all a matter of process and uh, an evolving socio-economic situation that determines, you know, the best uh, possible use that we or the government official um, can choose upon. So, in short, that means uh, some of the business will survive and some may not. But as long as these businesses and operations will not affect or adversely impact on the integrity of the historic building, uh, in my personal view, that's fine. Uh, because we have to accept that life will change. Uh, simply saying that, you know, we, we couldn't possibly say, well, a police station has to stay 
as police station forever because it does not serve the original purpose uh, functionally. Uh, and then we, we still have to make sure that the uh, uh, you know the government departments will have to kind of keep you know those buildings for the original purpose. That that's not uh, the uh, idea behind revitalization. No. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things under this partnership scheme is that the, the applicants must be a non-profit organization uh, with, with a, charitable to, a charitable status. So, you know, John Batten made the point that a, a lot of the time the, the, the way these things are vetted is, is by a bunch of government bureaucrats who don't know how to run a business. Now, why, why, can't, we, why can't we just allow well, them just, to be not yes. non-profits and actually money-making uh, businesses that can prop I'm up coming these to buildings? that point, actually, because John raises three interesting, you know, projects, Tycoon and, you know, uh, Central Market. Now, we, we are saying that, I agree, uh, if not all, most of the government officials are not uh, experienced in running any business. But I couldn't possibly comment, uh, accept that comment for, uh, you know, central market, right? And they've got a business partner with substantial business operation experience. Right. So, uh, I, I think... There's, and there's no, uh, you know, uh, such concern for Tycoon because it's fully supported by the jockey club financially. So there are three different, you know, business models. And when you talk about the partnership scheme, or we talk about partnership scheme, yes, we identify NGOs to run that. And, well, they will be uh, kind of constrained. And uh, per, in my personal view, I think we should allow more flexibility uh, for, you know, uh, kind of different business opportunities or commercial ideas. Uh, without losing the social mission. Do you agree, Fredo Jung, allow profit-making um, partnership in order to, you know, allow these buildings to survive? I think for larger buildings, um, it is inevitable. And this is why um, we say that, you know, conservation is not about preventing change. It's about managing change. So it's about um, minimal intervention, to ensure the um, that the significance of that building is um, is guaranteed, it's insured through the conservation process, but at the same time allowing for changes to allow it to survive. Because going back, you know, it's the reason why the building is under threat of demolition is that it is no longer relevant to contemporary society. So, in order to give it a new lease of life, you know, you have to allow for changes, and that is the reality. So, so are you are you agreeing that profit-making businesses should be allowed to apply through this partnership scheme? I think that it should, there should be some flexibility to allow for this, because at the same time, you know, it's actually looking at the bigger picture. You know, like John was saying about policy, um, we've established the Cultural Tourism and Sports Bureau. So with the um, explicit intent to actually promote, you know, sports culture and especially tourism. And um, one of the untapped um, sectors is about cultural tourism. So how do you promote cultural tourism? And again, you know, if you look at other cities in Southeast Asia, you know, it's through our built heritage assets. And we haven't even discussed how to utilize these built heritage assets to promote tourism. And to do that, you know, it's um, 
there needs to be some degree of commercialization. And uh, if you look at Singapore, you know, they've been doing, you know, they've been actually um, using this as part of their strategy. Right. Um, John Button, so Fred O'Shaughnessy is saying, you know, the, the, making them useful for tourists might be an idea. But uh, the, the, so let's have a look at the, the conservation of items that have been successful. Um, Loi Sanction in, in, in uh, I think it's Lai Chi Kok, is successful. Um, that is a, for the benefit of, of traditional Chinese medicine. Um, uh, as as you mentioned, um, tycoon is very successful. These are not for tourists. These are for local people use. Um, so they can be profitable. You know, pro profit making organizations should be allowed to apply, and they can be for local people use as well. Can't that can't that be be the case in the future? Rather than always thinking about tourism, which by the way we have none of right now. Uh, Jenny, um, as, as I said, I think, you know, rather than looking at one failure of an operator, then I think I agree with, with Andrew that the, 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 I think it's actually been fairly successful because we, we had a situation um, where these buildings were not considered they were not considered important by government, or they were considered important by local communities who had grown up with them, even an old police station. And then there was the, you know, the scandal of putting a supermarket in the, the Stanley police station, um, uh, or the scandal in the sense that people were outraged that a commercial venture went into it. And so there was actually quite a lot of debate in the, in the early 2000s, and the conserving central was a, a defining policy uh, feature of, 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 of the government. And I, I think one of the debates, you know, the, the fear of commercial uh, operators is that they will go overboard with ripping out interiors, which I said are not, not uh, generally protected and also putting in inappropriate uh, businesses. Um, although I'm a member of one of the committees of Daigun, I have many questions about its operation because in essence, it's operated in a, a very commercial way. And um, many of the business there are uh, commercial businesses. And so, to sustain, especially as Fredo said, of larger buildings, what do you do? You've got to put something there. And, you know, for example, with Daigun, I, in some ways I, I feel the, the tenants are not the right mixture. Um, but then, again, the, the, the dilemma is what do you put in there? Do you, for example, an office that, that may be in the, the, the main block, which was the old uh, police headquarters, it's got beautiful interior features which have been fairly well preserved uh, but as I, as, I, as I said you know if you don't have the money to go into the restaurant you can't see them likewise with a with an office so it, it's really a bit of a dilemma uh, for the larger buildings um, but but I think there's been a, some examples in Daigun which are really appalling and and one of them is in a in the old block um, up near the prison yard, which is a cell block. 
and they've got a bar there called Behind Bars. And this is really appalling because what they've done is the ground floor, there were individual cells for prisoners, and all the walls have been destroyed. And they are now uh, available as a bar. You can sit in this elongated, uh, I suppose, corridor sort of setting now. And I think it's really bad uh, heritage conservation because you're destroying the fabric with a really dumb idea for a, for a business. Okay. And the only way that Dyke Wound survives is because of, of the charitable funds of the Jockey Club and their uh, allowance of rent concessions to the current tenants, which have been go- has been going on for many years um, since it opened. So, you know, and, 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 you know, the irony of Central Market is it's, it's operated by China Chem, but actually China Chem is a charity because of the will of, 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 of the, the, the previous owner. So, you know, it's, it's a very complex situation we have in Hong Kong. But I, I, I think there are some examples that are really quite interesting. One is uh, King Inlay uh, up, up on the peak. And this has been sitting idle for, for years after it was destroyed by a property developer and then there was a, a, a land swap uh, and the government took it over. It's a beautiful building with no car parking. All right, Mr. Batten, I'm, I'm afraid we have to continue after the news because we have to uh, take a break very shortly and uh, um, we can continue our discussion in three minutes' time. Mr. Lam, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, lawmaker Andrew Lam, who is also the former chairman of the Antiquities Advisory Board. And uh, just a reminder that after 9.15, we'll f- uh, be speaking to a an HKU professor to find out more about a new hepatitis B drug. If you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, do give us a call. Our number is 233-88266. Now here's the weather, mainly fine, cool with cloudy periods in the morning, dry during the day with highs of around 22 degrees. Winds moderate north to northeasterlies. And uh, right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 17 degrees, relative humidity 67%. Heritage Conservationist Fredo Cheung, the former vice president of the Hong Kong Institute of Architectural Conservationists, and John Batten, the convener of the Central and Western Concern Group. So just before the news, John Batten, you were talking about King Yin Lei. So this is the building uh, on Tai Hang Road, um, that basically the, the wrecking balls and, and diggers moved in before the, the conservationists put a stop to it. Um, and you were saying, you know, it, there, there is no, this very difficult public access, there's no parking. What are your thoughts, King Yin Lei? Well, it has been given to an operator now, and I'm a bit vague of, of who it is. Um, I think... Uh, it's some cultural organisation. But I was just going to tell the story of the, um, a very viable use for the building, which was from the, the Hong Kong Ink Society. And the, the, they wanted to... Often when you want to turn a building into a cultural facility, you, you have the fabric of the old building, which is fine for some events, but... They're not very good for, for art exhibitions. So Daigwoon have done one good thing, which is the, the two insertions of the new buildings uh, around the prison yard. One is a, a, a galleries and the other one is a, uh, uh, a block for, for theatre and performances. 
So these are new buildings which are appropriate, and they replaced uh, um, older buildings which were not so historic. Now, Kenyon Lay has a swimming pool, which is on uh, the lower level, and the idea of the Ink Society was they would build a new building there which would be more appropriate for art exhibitions, and the government decided they didn't want that. Um, so here is a good idea with, with people who've got money. You know, they're very old money in Hong Kong. Um, but the stumbling blocks was the appropriateness of a new building and the real dilemma of, of access um, because the access is really bad. We know there are traffic jams on the road and it's, it's very difficult. And uh, the Ink Society said they'll have shuttle buses. Well, we know that's often not going to work. So, um, you know, it's a, just a real dilemma. And I, I think that's probably also what's happened at, at, with the, the former Tiger Balm uh, building, the Hawpa uh, House. It, 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 it's just like, how, how can you get the right fit? And we were, Fredo and I were just having a little chat. You know, things fail. And then you have a replacement, they fail again, you have a replacement. This is the way things work. Um, and so I, I don't see Hall Par as being a failure. We'll go on to the next idea. Uh, but the important thing is to get these buildings open to the public. And King Inlay is a beautiful building. It really is be a beautiful interior, very interesting uh, 1930s fake Chinese but it's of the era. It's like a, a California mansion uh, uh, built by a Hollywood star. It's got that sort of feel to it. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I just think let, let's, let's look at the buildings and try and find appropriate uses for them. And it, it's often evolving. So, so what do you think uh, would be an appropriate use for Hallpaw Mansion now? I, I don't think it's for me to say. I, I, I think you do an open call. Uh, and, and just see what, what turns up. Uh, but, you know, a, a business models and cash flow are very important. Uh, and, you know, if it's a really good idea, then, yes, you can, you can offer subsidies. Uh, Hallpaw is a, is a bit of a difficult one because it's a domestic building and all the rooms are, are not particularly big. So... Uh, you know, for example, what's what's the building up in Bowen? Bowen is a Bowen Road, and it was a former old hospital, and it's got a lot of NGOs there. You know, you can put a, a different different types of NGOs who need an office, and you allow the public to 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 to, to visit these these facilities. I, I think we need to be a bit open-minded, and um, yeah. Hopa uh, building is, is difficult. It's in a difficult location. It's, uh, it's not on a main drag. It's, it, it, it's an upper die hung. Um, yeah. yeah the, the other building that comes to mind is, is the one on Nathan Road with, with the long balconies. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. So, so you know, that's, that's, you know, a prime property. Uh, I suppose... The, the the difficulty for the government is, you know, if, if, if it has to be a non-profit, you're asking a non-profit to occupy a prime site. 
Um, I mean, and, and then this whole idea of what is appropriate and what's appropriate, it's really so subjective. Fatal Junk, what should be done with a his, historic building like that in a prime site? I think, yeah, it underscores the problem, you know, with um, the government taking lead in, um, in the conservation process. You know, they're actually using public funds to acquire um, a historic building. And, you know, you're using public funds, so it has to be for public interest. Well, some, sometimes the government does give a grant for the renovation. Yeah, they do. And um, so I think the best way forward is actually to encourage private owners to take lead and then you know, set an example by, you know, taking ownership of that building and conserving their own volition. But what if the owner wants to demolish the building? And um, so this is why we have the last resort. And once the government actually goes through the process of actually acquiring the building, then, you know, the, um, the way it will be um, adapted for its new use, you know, the scenario would either be that it will be going through the R scheme. And um, so an NGO would have to um, assume operation of this building. Or maybe, you know, they would invite... Um, maybe a um, private venture to actually take possession of the building and then adapt it. Yeah, but uh, I mean, why is it that you can't ask a business to take over the building and, and, and sort of point to certain elements inside the building that, that you can't wreck, the Hopar building? You know, I've, I've never actually been there, but I've seen it online. It's got this beautiful stained glass, stained glass thing of a, of, of a couple of tigers. You know, why can't you just say, okay, if you take over this building, you are not allowed to wreck that, and and maybe other features as well. I think that that is what happens. You know, if a government actually acquires the building, you know, um, for uh, the explicit purpose of conservation. So, um, ideally, a, a conservation management plan will be uh, produced to ensure that the most significant parts of the buildings will be conserved. All right. I have an email here and it says uh, Hong Kong should consult with other countries who can offer valuable advice for looking after cultural assets. Regrettably, Asia is pretty tone deaf here. And uh, Mr. Batten, what do you say? I mean, if we if we need to um, look for look at a good example, where, where should we look? You know, the, the, the dilemma for Hong Kong is we are a co very commercial entity. And we have great pressure on land. So the, the Nathan Rowe site is a, is a very good example. It, it, at the moment, it, it, it's owned by uh, probably an old family uh, who've had it in the family and it's been used as a commercial building and it pays rent. But the airspace above it is very valuable. And in the end, what, what we're coming down to are the, the final few... Tong Lao and the final few historic buildings of that era. Anything pre-Second World War is, is basically being developed. So what, are we, what have we got left? Not much. So probably the argument you could use with government is like, let's acquire them and at least have those as examples. And although I'm not a great fan of the URA, um, I think their preservation of the the old Tong Lao on Shanghai Street uh, in Mong Kok is pretty good. There, there's a row there that they've kept. Um, but 
when it comes to a uh, to a private owner, unless it has monument status, there is no legal right for the property owner to keep it. So the only way that we can preserve a site. So the planning, the planning regulations in Hong Kong don't really account for putting a height limit on a privately owned uh, building. But Mr. Batson, what the email is saying is uh, basically when we look at uh, preserving historic buildings in Hong Kong, I I are there places where we can um, learn from? I don't think we need to look overseas. We have particular things happening in Hong Kong that are particular to Hong Kong. We need to deal with them and we need to take hard decisions. As I said, change our planning rules like you, you have in Australia where you have a heritage overlay for a site. You know, areas in Hong Kong are not preserved because they're development areas. Where I come from in Melbourne, there are big, vast areas which have what is called a heritage overlay and you can't go above mm -hmm. a second floor height or a third floor height. Buildings, individual buildings are targeted. and So, yes, there are models overseas, but in the end, we need to... We, we need to look at what we have in Hong Kong. Right. And Mr. Cheung, I mean, when we talk about the, uh, um, the pre-war building on uh, Nathan Road, and uh, I mean, the, the Antiquities Advisory Board is expected to uh, um, consider listing it as a uh, grade one historic building um, at a meeting tomorrow. They're going to look at that. And from your view, I mean, from your knowledge of the building, do you think uh, it qualifies as a grade one uh, historic building? I would say that it's uh, grade one, which puts it uh, on the potential list of becoming a declared monument. And I could even see it becoming a declared monument because it is the last European building in that district. It's the last of its kind. So, um, and you don't see examples of this kind of building anywhere else in Hong Kong, except for maybe in Prince Edward Road West, you know, at Fa Hoi, but... You know, those pale in comparison to the one you see in, in Austin at the intersection of Nathan Road and Austin Road. Yeah, and, and this whole point about changing the policy, as, as John Barton was saying, you know, there are some obvious problems there in that you have to, A, the, in order to, to make sure it doesn't change at all, um, the, the government presumably has to justify um, spending some taxpayers' money to, to maybe renovate it or, or keep it. Or, um, and and that's, a, that's a difficult one. What do you think? Sp spending spending government money to not to necessarily, Jenny. Uh, as I said, you can use the planning regulations to say no. This building cannot be be developed, um, and that those hard decisions have never been made in Hong Kong because we are such a commercial place, and so you only preservation of a building at the moment is if it's monument status and how many do we have we have maybe 30 declared monuments in hong kong um it's, it's very few you know some major examples you know the, the the oldest western building is in the happy valley uh cemetery it is not a declared mon monument bishop house on bishop hill in central uh, next door to the fcc is not a declared monument, even though it should be. I think it's the second oldest Western building in Hong Kong. So, you know, we've got a lot of dilemmas because people don't want to step on other people's toes. We, we're not, we don't want to make those hard decisions. 
All right, uh, Mr. Batten, I'm afraid we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. And that's uh, John Batten, the convener of the Central and Western Concern Group. Many thanks also to heritage conservationist Fredo Cheung, the former vice president of the Hong Kong Institute of Architectural Conservationists. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. It's now 16 minutes past nine and it's time to turn to our next topic today. And it's about a new hepatitis B drug the University of Hong Kong has been working on. And it aims to free patients from lifelong medication. To tell us more, we're joined on the line now by Professor Yun Man Fung, who leads the university's hepatology department. Good morning, Professor Yun. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so how does this new drug work? Uh, this drug actually basically works by lowering or reducing uh, a viral antigen we call surface antigen of hepatitis B virus. And this antigen actually has an effect on suppressing the immune system of the body. And if we can remove or I mean lower down the surface antigen level, then the suppression on the immune system will be lessened. And that we want to reawaken the immune system and let the immune system to control the virus rather than adding, uh, rather than uh, using drugs. So one of the things that this uh, new drug can do is is to um, such that the patients don't have to take drugs for life. Uh, what what are the impact on the patients when they do take drugs for life? What are the side I, I, I think, I mean, although we know that the, the drug nowadays for, for hepatitis B is relatively cheap, but they, they still need to take it, for example, one tablet a day and for lifelong. So uh, I think, I mean, the impact will be, I mean, if we are successful in, I mean, uh, relieving those patients who don't need to take the drug for lifelong, then, then that will be in decrease, a, a decrease in the burden of the patient psychologically. And although financially it may not be, have a very good impact, Oh, well, can you can you walk us through why has it been so difficult to to tackle hepatitis B? As far as I can understand, the the virus itself is is tiny in the first place. What what? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, in in fact, the virus is actually very clever because it actually resides in the hepatocyte. And in fact, when we look at the the virus, they have the template of the virus inside what we call leukeus of the hepatocyte, the liver cells. So. This I mean, the drug cannot go into the leukeus of the hepatocyte. That, that makes the eradication very, very difficult. And also, in addition to that, the infection started in the early childhood. So the, the, the infection is actually a very chronic one, and that makes another hurdle for drugs to, I mean, totally eradicate the virus. Mm-hmm. I understand that in Hong Kong, up to 7.8% of the population um, have hepatitis B. Why do we have such a high rate of infection? I think, I mean, number one is because we, we, we know the, the infection started uh, maybe in the, in the Asia and then it spread all over in the day where we, we don't have the vaccination. So the, the virus actually spread from, I mean, mother to, to baby, mother to childhood, uh, child, and then, then they spread all along with the family. So, so the, the thing is, if your family's members has the chronic hepatitis B infection, then there will be a chance that um, around you, basically your father, mother, siblings, they also have a chance of getting the virus. That's why this is so common in Asia. Right. And going back to your new drug, I mean, uh, you talked about how it can uh, remove the agents that uh, suppress the immune system and reawaken the immune cells to take over uh, control of the hepatitis B virus. Um, How effective is this new drug? 
uh, we, according to this study, we actually recruited for more than 400 patients all, all over the world, not only in Hong Kong. And we find that at least 9 to 10 percent of those patients who are supposed to take the medication for long term, we are successful in removing that uh, after uh, receiving a 24 weeks of this new therapy. Yeah, so, so actually this new therapy is an injection rather than a pill, am I right? Yes, it's actually given every week uh, subcutaneously. So that's why that's why we don't want. I mean, our aim is not to give the injection or treatment for for life. So we limit the, the duration of treatment for 24 weeks, and we find that um, nine to 10 percent of these patients they actually had the uh, record. I mean. Um, negative service antigen, the virus, virus protein. And in fact, when we look at those patients who have relatively low baseline level of service antigen, we actually can reach the, 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 the successful rate to 16 to 25%. So there is uh, another, I mean, group of patients where this drug can even work worse better. How, how, what's about, what about cost? Is it expensive? Oh, that is difficult because, because right, now, right now we are still doing the trial and um, we need to take more time to, I mean, refine the dosage or even the duration and then beside, be, before we can, I mean, determine the drug. And that will be, uh, lies on the hands of, uh, of the, in the, in the pharmaceutical companies. And so what, what is the next stage of the development of this drug? So we, we, are, we are now embarking on what we call phase three uh, study, where we would recruit more patients with a finite duration of treatment and then confirm this I mean, efficacy of the new drug. And before, before that, we can, we, I, mean, not only, I mean, after finishing this, then, then we can actually register the drug for use. Right. And you mentioned that uh, in your study, 9 to 10 percent, uh, I mean, the, the new drug worked on 9 to 10 percent of the uh, patients. I mean, are, are there any similarities in the patients who, uh, who I mean, that, that actually that the drug actually worked on? Uh, no, I mean, as I said, I mean, across all the, I mean, patients, because this is a multi-center international study, so we actually have different, I mean, types of patients uh, around the world. So, I mean, we don't, we don't see, I mean, any particular thing that will, I mean, lead to a high chance of the, the, the success that is the negative surface antigen, except the only one thing that I already mentioned, that for those who have lower baseline surface antigen level, they, they have a better response. The other factor may also contribute to the response rate will be what we call the BMI. So the most smaller size I mean, uh, patients tends to respond better. Okay. I suppose the other thing, um, the other positive thing about um, this new drug is that it provides some relief on our healthcare system, doesn't it? I, I would say so, because number one, uh, if we can achieve this, I mean, surface engine negative uh, in the body, and uh, we don't need the patients to take long-term medication, number one, this is a benefit, as I already mentioned. The second benefit is we can further lower down the I mean, chance of the complications of hepatitis B, that is liver cancer and cirrhosis, and obviously uh, mortality. So if we are successful in bringing more patients achieving this result, then we will expect um, the, the complication rates from the disease will be dramatically decreased. And that obviously will, I mean, um, lessen the burden of taking care of these patients. And these patients uh, may not need to take drug for long, and then it will also make the, the, the monitoring of patients much more easier. And how long do you think it will take to achieve a higher success rate for this new drug? I, I think, I mean, um, 
we we are now embarking on 24 weeks of treatment. So we don't know um, whether 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 we can prolong the treatment for lo- I mean slightly longer will increase the response rate. Number one. Number two is in fact we are now also thinking of combining this drug with other new drugs, and that will also increase the chance of getting success. All right, uh, Professor Yuan, thanks for speaking us, uh, with us this morning and uh, good luck with your work. That's uh, Professor Yuan Fung, who leads the University of Hong Kong's Hepatology Department. It's now coming up to 25 minutes past nine and it's time for our World Cup update with our sports correspondent, Adam Chung. Good morning, Atom. Good morning. So basically, we have two big games to talk about this morning. And uh, let's start with uh, the big 6-1 win by Portugal over Switzerland. Can you tell us more? Yeah, this was uh, an amazing game for Gonzalo Ramos. He's got a hat-trick in this one. Uh, He started in place of Cristiano Ronaldo and basically in his first World Cup start, scored three goals. And uh, and they were all very nice goals. Uh, The first one, it was like his fourth touch of the game and he found the net so he got three uh, also interesting about this game 39 year old Pepe also made the score sheet he scored Portugal's second goal uh, the other goals went to Rafael Guerrero and uh, Rafael Leal a player that I like very much he plays his club football for AC Milan so quality from Portugal uh, against a Switzerland team that really are not that bad. In fact, their previous meeting, the Swiss actually beat the Portuguese. So it's a huge win, 6-1, and they did it without Cristiano Ronaldo. Yes, and I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, without Cristiano Ronaldo, I mean, he was dropped from the uh, starting lineup. I mean, were you surprised by that or or would you say it was uh, expected after his uh, falling out uh, with uh, coach Fernando Santos? Yeah, you know what? I think those who, who followed the game have been calling for putting Ronaldo on the bench he's probably better as a substitute just to keep the team's chemistry because I think Ronaldo is distracted by so many things because the World Cup he always makes it about himself he's chasing records so he becomes more of a distraction even though he's insanely talented so I think it's a I'm not too surprised. I think it's a great move by Fernando Santos, uh, a brave move. But then it's it's understandable because he's been with this team for so long. Uh, since 2014, he's been with them. So it's, it's a good move. And uh, yeah, I mean, it turns out to be the correct decision now that uh, Ramos got three goals to uh, repay the manager. Right. Now, uh, what about the other game uh, where Morocco beat Spain on penalties? I mean, what did you make of that? Yeah, this was huge because this is uh, Morocco reaching the World Cup quarterfinals for the first time. They are only the fourth African side in history to make it this far in the World Cup and the first Arab nation to do so. I am disappointed in Spain. But I've also been impressed by Morocco's defensive ability. They've only conceded one goal all tournament. Spain actually dominated possession. They had the ball almost 80% of the game and only uh, managed one shot on target and really didn't have that many quality chances. So it came down to penalties. Morocco won it 3-0 on penalties. Credit to their goalkeeper, Bono. He uh, stopped two of the three uh, penalties missed by Spain. Uh, But the big one, uh, he stopped uh, uh, 
Sergio Busquets, uh, the Spanish uh, captain. Uh, I, I like Bono's style. He kind of likes to move around on the goal line before the taker uh, makes contact with the ball to just distract the player. So he was huge for Morocco in the shootout. And then the winning sh- uh, penalty kick was taken uh, in a very sort of a stylish manner by Ashraf Hakimi, who kind of chipped the ball down the middle to make the goalkeeper go the wrong way. Right, and uh, what are you going to do tonight? I mean, there are no more no <laughs> matches tonight, Atom. No, I guess I'll get some uh, decent sleep finally. So, uh, yeah, tonight there will be a break, uh, but the uh, action resumes uh, Friday night, uh, starting with Brazil versus Croatia, and that's followed by Argentina versus the Netherlands. We talked about Portugal and Morocco. Those two teams will play Saturday night, and then the big one, the late kickoff Saturday night, that's between England and France. All right, Atom, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks for your update, and uh, we'll speak to you again tomorrow. That's uh, Atom Chung, our sports correspondent. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today, and of course to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and our producer, Yuki. Now, here's the weather. Mainly fine, cool with cloudy periods in the morning. Dry during the day with a top temperature of around 22 degrees. Winds moderate north to northeasterlies, occasionally fresh offshore to start with. And the outlook, fine and dry with cool mornings in the next couple of days. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 18 degrees and the relative humidity is 65%. I'm Dr. Siu Kaka, pediatric respirologist. The best protection for kids aged 6 months or above against the surging pandemic is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women, who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. It's 9.30, the news with Barry O'Rourke. Donald Trump's family business has been found guilty of tax fraud by a New York, New York jury. The Trump organization and separate entity, the Trump Payroll Corp, were found guilty on all counts, marking the first time the companies had ever been convicted of crimes. Mr. Trump was not charged. The two entities were convicted of running a 13-year scheme to defraud and evade taxes by falsifying business records. The United States has insisted it isn't enabling Ukraine to strike into Russia, following attacks on military bases deep inside Russian territory. The State Department did not say who carried out the attacks. On Monday, the Russian Defense Ministry blamed Ukrainian drones. It said three people were killed 